For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's podcast is sponsored by Benign Images. Benign Images is a storyteller consulting company. Through meaningful dialogue and guidance, they help storytellers of all kinds to tell the stories that they feel they have a need to tell. Whether it's through simple editor services, consulting, or helping creatives to set up an effective work habit, Benign Images will work with you to help you become a better storyteller. Start your project with them today by visiting their website, benignimages.com. That is benignimages.com. B-E-N-I-G-N images.com. Go check them out. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang, y'all gonna remember the name. Y'all gonna remember the name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we have got on a stand-up comedian. He's also one of the co-hosts of the Trigonometry podcast, which I was featured on a couple of months ago. And this is my friend and former schoolmate, Konstantin Kissin. Welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me, man. It's an honor. So I've just uh, done a very quick intro of you right there. So why don't you explain to the audience who you are? Well, as you said, I'm a stand-up comedian. I'm originally from Russia. I came to this country when I was 13 years old and I've lived here since. Uh, in addition to doing stand-up, we have the trigonometry podcast that you mentioned that you've been on. And the point of that is to have conversations that are honest with interesting people uh, with no filters. Uh, so we get in people who, who have something interesting to say, often people have something controversial to say, or people who've been controversial like you, or have done <laughs> something like that. Uh, and we try and just get to the bottom of some of the most difficult issues that are kind of part of the debate right now, what you might call the culture war, whether it's the gender pay gap. You know, we bring on in, you know, an economist to talk about what are some of the causes of that? Or we've had evolutionary psychologists on the show, people like Diana Fleischman, Jeffrey Miller, to talk about, you know, what are the differences between men and women? Why why is it not right to have a, a female fighter fighting a trans woman in a cage? You know, w- mm. what are what are some of the biological differences there? You know, all kinds of stuff like that, really. So we we've we we we're really interested in what's happening in society now. And we what we felt when we started the show was that these conversations are not being had honestly. We're not having these conversations in the way that reflects the reality. So t- just take the issue that you became uh, particularly known for with the whole trans thing, right? Is we we had a national debate on Good Morning Britain with people actually genuinely discussing if there are physical differences between men and women. Mm-hmm. 
I've had some of those conversations myself. I mean, one of the interviews I did on BBC, the title of the conversation was do biological men have a strength advantage over women in sport? That was the debate topic, yeah. which, you know, I mean, obviously I was there and I gave my honest opinions and well, not opinions, facts. And um, it was just sort of in the back of my mind, it was just amazing to me that this was even a conversation. Because it's, you know, we, we can always clash over opinions and things that are gray areas, but there are some things which are black and white and, mm -hmm. you know, facts do exist. Two plus two does equal four. No matter how much I want to feel, it may equal three or equal five or seven. It does equal four. And we like, we, we live in this world where not, no, sorry, not opinions, emotions and feelings and even ideologies are trumping facts in some cases, which is a little bit concerning. So one thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, I want to kind of I want to kind of take it way back. Mm. So you said you came to the UK when you were 13. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your life. Tell us about what it what tell us about you and what has led to the stage where the trigonometry podcast even exists and you even getting into stand up comedy. I'd like to know your story. Well, this is one of the things that I find so interesting because it ties into exactly what we're talking about because I grew up in a society where essentially my parents would have to have a conversation with me when I was a seven-year-old going to school about what I could and couldn't say in school that we might discuss privately in the home. Mm. Because if you said the wrong thing as a kid in the Soviet Union where I grew up, your parents would be in trouble. Uh, yeah. They might be arrested. They might be interrogated. They might lose their job. They might... In, you know, in previous decades, not in my parents' time, but previously they might get sent to the gulag. They might be executed, yeah. right? So uh, we lived in exactly that society, which is what George Orwell wrote about, where you had to, at some point, hold publicly, at least, the opinion that two plus two equals five. Yeah. And if you didn't do that, there would be very, very severe consequences. So uh, I, growing up, that was always something that was at the back of my mind. Uh, and in fact, my grandfather, my father's father, he was actually exiled from the Soviet Union for basically saying the wrong thing. Right? Okay. So what, what were the specific things? So I, I hear stories about the Soviet Union. I've done a little bit of reading about it, not as much as I, as I planned to. But now that those repercussions are no longer there, what are some of the things that your parents, for example, would say to you as a kid? Like, okay, you can't say this in public or you can't talk about this with your friends in school. Like, do you, are, can you give a couple sort of general examples? Well, the thing with the Soviet Union was essentially a completely rotten society. It was riddled with corruption. Uh, you would not be promoted in work based on merit. You would be promoted in work based on who you paid a bribe to and who your contacts were, whose nephew you were and stuff like that, right? So it was a society that was riddled with corruption at every level, from the very mm -hmm. top to the very bottom. But if you were to say that, uh, the, the notion of the Soviet Union was this, it was this egalitarian society where everybody was equal, everybody had equal right, everybody had equal opportunity. So if anyone criticized that or make a joke about it or, or pointed out some of the hypocrisies of that society in any way, you, you would be in trouble. Yeah. And, and the reason that the Soviet Union had to have this oppressive police state and had to have the secret police and had to put people in prison is there was a system that was fundamentally flawed. It was a system that would take away from the capable and give it to the people who were less capable or less hardworking. And it didn't work because human beings don't work that way. Yeah. You know, if you if you say to people that you don't get rewarded for your effort uh, and someone else gets rewarded for a lack of effort, that is a society in which no one makes an effort. Mm. 
Mm. Um, so there were, the, it was a society that was riddled with these contradictions. And the reason that they had to suppress freedom of expression and they had to suppress freedom of speech and they had to prevent people from speaking out or even making jokes about these things is that essentially the act of somebody publicly challenging it would be so revolutionary because everyone already agreed with the challenge. Everyone mm. knew it was a flawed society. Sounds familiar. You're right. Well, this is my point. <laughs> this is my point. This is why I'm so worried about what's happening in the West now, because it's 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 exactly like your example or, or the example with me and so on that we might get into is anyone who says something that we all know to be true must be silenced mm. because what they're saying is true because we know it's true it's not that they must be silenced because what they're saying is hateful or dangerous for that reason they must be silent precisely because we all know that what they're saying is true so in the soviet union making a joke about the stupidity of the communist system or about a leader of the communist system or just anything saying mm. anything critical of the government of the structure in which we live was automatically something for which people would be punished i mean during stalin times uh, I know personally of people whose families were persecuted and put in the gulag for the fact that they wrapped chips, potato chips, in in a newspaper which had Stalin's face on it. Oh wow! Right. Yikes. So, or or there was a the a whole newspaper editorial team was shot within 24 hours because they misspelled a headline which was about Stalin. So it was this massive personality cult under Stalin, but it, it was it was a broader thing. Mm. It was about uh, suppressing people's opinions. It was about keeping everyone in a climate of fear so that it wasn't so much that the rules of what you could and couldn't say were very clear. They were quite deliberately unclear so that you never knew where you stand, yeah. so that you would be extra careful about what you did and did, could and couldn't say. Again, sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So here's here's a question. So at the time you were growing up, I mean, what was the actual system like? So before the collapse of the Soviet Union, when it was still intact, I mean, so obviously your family was living there, your parents were working there. I mean, how did the system actually work? So were they employed directly by the government or how did it actually work? Like, what are the details well, of it? Well, everybody was employed directly by the government. Mm. In the Soviet Union, there was no such thing as private enterprise. Okay. Um, and in fact, private enterprise was a crime. Yeah. So if you opened up a lemonade stand, that was counter-revolutionary activity for which you could go to, to the gulag for 25 years. Yeah. Uh, because you were sabotaging the socialist system, mm. which said that the government told you what to do in every respect. So you, you would go to school. You would get your grades. You would go to university. Uh, let's say you studied physics or IT. We didn't have IT at the time, but let's say you studied physics, right? Yeah. Once you graduate, the government would decide not only which job you did, but where you did the job. Mm. So, for example, my father went to university in Moscow. And on graduating as a chemical engineer, he was sent to Uzbekistan okay. to work on a nuclear power plant there. Mm. And he had no choice in that. So you could be sent from one corner of the of the of the country to another purely because that is what the government had decided needed to happen. Yeah. And what about the the taxes and the redistribution? I mean, was it even was there a still direct income tax or was it just like how did the distribution take place? You know what? It's you odd know. because I actually don't know. I, yeah. I'm not so sure. I, I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing here. But no, that's OK. 
I don't remember taxes ever being discussed in the Soviet mm. Union. Uh, you just had the salary that you had. It was not negotiable, right? So yeah. it was a grade of salary across the whole country, and that is what you would be paid. Okay. And I suspect the taxes would have been withheld directly from that. Mm. But also, there is no not so much need to tax people because if the government employs everybody, then the product it's... that is generated goes straight to the government. Yeah, that's what uh, I was in intrigued by because I, I know obviously what communism is on a high level, but as someone who actually did live mm. in that system for uh, your your childhood, I'm just wondering, like, how did, what were the mechanisms, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, that's yeah, something yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to read up a little bit more on. So coming forward a little bit, so you came to school in the UK, obviously, mm. we um we actually went to the same, same boarding school together. So that's where we first met. For anyone curious, we were actually even in the same boarding house. So yeah. um, we were living in the same building for, mm. for several years. Mm. So Talk us through what, what that was like, what it was like first coming to the UK. And then, I guess, afterwards, everything that's led you to eventually becoming a stand-up comic. Because I'm not actually, we sort of had a, it's interesting how uh, after, after school finished, we sort of lost touch with each other for over a decade. Mm. And then we sort of came back in touch via Twitter. And I think you were like, oh, look, Zuby's a rapper. Oh, Constantine's a, a comedian. Like, how, how has this happened? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, actually, before I do do that, let me just okay. to, to talk about the Soviet Union a little bit more, because I yeah, think it's it. something people don't really know. There was no private property in the Soviet Union. Right. So you could not have an apartment or a flat or, or a house. Mm -hmm. uh, it was very unusual for people to be able. Some of them kind of managed to hold on to the house from pre-revolutionary times. But generally speaking, if you wanted a place to live, you would be allocated one by the state. Okay. If you wanted a car, you would be allocated one by the state. There would be a five-year waiting period, right? Wow. And when I talk earlier about corruption, you can immediately see why corruption would exist. Because if things are allocated to you, not on the basis of, I did this job on my merit, I got this much money on the merit, now I go to the shop and I buy something. Mm -hmm. But rather, you got allocated things by people who who had the power in their hands, some kind of administrator somewhere, a decision maker, mm -hmm. then then the, the, the market economy still creeps into it. It's just the money doesn't go to the shop. It goes to the crooked administrator. Yeah, yeah. That, so the concept of not private, no private property, I think, would be quite alien to many people. Uh, so it was interesting because what happened with me is um, when the Soviet Union collapsed, there was a time of, of tremendous opportunity. It was a very difficult time for many people, but it was a time for tremendous opportunity. And my dad, because of my grandfather speaking out and being exiled from the Soviet Union, his whole family uh, were affected by this. He was fired from his job. His wife was fired from her job. My dad and his sister were kicked out of university. Mm -hmm. And this was right before the Soviet Union collapsed. So my dad kind of started a little small business right on the as the Soviet Union was collapsing. And then him and his friends started another business and another business. And then eventually they founded Russia's first bank. Oh, wow. Just, just like that. Okay. That's kind of how things worked back then, which sounds crazy, right? They didn't really have any money to do it properly. But that was how things were. You just kind of did stuff and saw what worked. Yeah, I imagine uh, it must have been very a very destabilizing time for hugely. people. I mean, because even if that system beforehand wasn't good, it's like it's been there for several decades. People have grown up in it. People are used to it. And then suddenly this this thing collapses. And it's like, well, firstly, you've got new 
independent countries essentially mm. but then you've also got people who it's like oh now you can start a business now you can hire people what was that transition like well you see the thing about that is that for some people it was an opportunity but for the vast majority of people it was a huge loss yeah because imagine that you, you've been studying all your life to become a scientist which was one of the most well-paid and uh respected professions in the soviet union mm -hmm. and then the soviet union collapses and suddenly russia is just trying to find its feet doesn't need scientists yeah and you've lost everything overnight so you had people who'd, who'd spent 20 years trying to make a career as a scientist overnight becoming beggars selling their wow. furniture on the streets it was all the safety and comfort and stability mm. that people had disappeared overnight yeah and if you think about what's happened in russia since with vladimir putin uh, taken over from Boris Yeltsin and being in power for 20 years now, mm -hmm. right? That is a direct reaction to people going, oh my God, life is not certain. Things are not stable. Let's mm -hmm. get in the strong man who can actually stabilize this thing. Yeah. So that and makes, so that, that context makes his popularity certainly in Russia. I mean, there, there's, it's almost like there's two views of Putin, right? There's the way the people in Russia seem to view him which a lot of it does seem to be genuine not that they're being you know forced to view him this way and then the sort of global or western view where he's considered you know much more of a, a villainous figure mm -hmm. rather than a hero but in given that context it makes a lot more sense why you just want this strong very stable figurehead you know to give that sense of security and predictability well think about your own life if if you had this the sense that tomorrow everything you have could be wiped away and disappear and you would be on the street and your children would be starving mm. your concern for democracy would be considerably <laughs> less than yeah. it is now so in some ways democracy is a kind of it's a product of a successful society a stable society in gotcha. a way. um so anyway so my my dad was uh in this position where there was opportunity and he made quite a lot of money very quickly so he was able to send me to boarding school in England. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't speak any English when I came. So it was it was a couple of years of very hard adaptation. I couldn't really make friends. It was quite, this was before you came to the school, by the sure. way. Yeah. So, so you wouldn't have caught this. But yeah, it took me a couple of years to really get a sense of how it is and uh, understand the culture a bit more. Uh, but I really enjoyed boarding school because what I felt like it was a place where ultimately, you were given so many opportunities to try so many different things, uh, whether that's if you, you know, horse riding or shooting or debating or whatever, golf or, or, what, or rugby or football or whatever, that you didn't have to be good at all of them. Yeah. You didn't even have to be good academically. As we know, the most popular cool kids at school were not the ones who were good at maths or economics or whatever. Mm. Uh, if you could be good at something, you would be recognized for that and you would be rewarded for that. Right. So in my case, it was debating. In my case, it was certain sports that I played. And it, it gave you a sense of confidence in yourself because you got a chance to discover quite an early age that actually there are some things you're good at. Yeah. And I think that is the one thing that I mean, you talk about privilege. That is the genuine privilege that if you if you go to boarding school that you have, you have the chance to try enough things to find out the thing that you're actually good at. Whereas if you go to a school where the opportunities you have are to do the normal academic subjects and maybe to play football mm -hmm. and let's say you're not good at any of those then you haven't had that confidence boost from an early age where 
you've had an opportunity to go, oh, wow, I'm actually good at something. Yeah. Well, maybe I should make some. So for me, for example, debating, we had these debating competitions and stuff at school. Yeah, that was one of the things I really enjoyed. Uh, and I don't think it's a surprise that I now host a, a YouTube show. I'm a stand-up comedian. I go on TV and debate people about stuff. It's part of that. I kind of had that sense that this is what I can do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was school. And then I went to university in Edinburgh. And right at that moment, my father got into a lot of trouble in Russia. Uh, it was a very volatile time. So there were a lot of power plays and power moves. And my dad, by that point, was a minister in Boris Yeltsin's government. Boris okay. Yeltsin was Russia's first president. And you know how like British or American politics works now is if you want to take someone down, you take a quote that they said on Twitter seven years ago and you misrepresent it. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, back then in Russia, it was very different. You, you would fabricate some kind of false allegation against the person and you would get police who were on your payroll to come and arrest them or take them away or something like that. So that's basically what happened to my dad. And he had to flee Russia under false identity. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. And for 10 years, he, he had to live under false identity. He couldn't go back. And the reason was actually very interesting, because when uh, the police came to, to our house, they seized some like a, a bunch of cash, my mother's jewelry, my father's really expensive watch and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And the person who organized this false allegation against my dad, he had absolutely no power within about two years. He himself had been completely destroyed two years later. Yeah. But for some reason, the police wouldn't close the case against my dad, even though it was completely fabricated. And it was only about eight or nine years later that through my lawyer, through my dad's lawyer, mm -hmm. he worked out that the reason they couldn't close the case was that they had all these valuables in an evidence locker, right? Like, you mm -hmm. know, when you, in, in this country, if you get arrested, the police come and seize your stuff, they sure. put it in an evidence locker. Yeah. Well, that stuff wasn't in an evidence locker anymore. The watch, uh, the money, the everything, it'd been gone. He was yeah. gone. He was been spent. And so that's why they wouldn't close the case. And eventually when my dad said to him, look, just forget about that stuff, yeah. they closed the case. So right as I was at university, halfway through university, paying these huge foreign student fees, mm. my dad went from being essentially a millionaire to having nothing. Ah, wow. So this is one of the reasons that when we talk about privilege, it pisses me off tremendously. <laughs> because it's like... Where do you want to draw the cutoff line? Mm. You know, I've lived in a mansion. I've lived in a park. Yeah. Right. Do, do you want to take the day before I had to live in a park for three weeks because I had no money? Yeah. Because then I'm, I'm super privileged. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had all the privilege in the world. Or do you want to take it right after right as I'm sleeping in the park? And, yeah. and then I have no privilege and I'm whatever. The, the craziest thing about the current privilege conversation is that it's not even generally based on socioeconomic factors, which would at least make a little bit more sense. You see what I mean? Mm. So I'll be the first to tell somebody that I'm privileged, right? Like I, I'm, I said on, on my very first album, I had a, I had a lyric saying, I'm a privileged kid, yo, just stayed in the facts so you can get a better picture, see it clearly like context. So like mm. I put, I put that out there. I'm like, yeah, look, I'm, I'm at Oxford university. I went to boarding school. Like I've never wondered where my next meal is coming from or had to be homeless or anything like that. You know, I recognize plenty of people have been through that. And so I don't check my privilege per se, but I'm like, I'm not, if someone's like, oh, you're, I'm like, yeah, okay. And what? You see, you know what I mean? It's like that, that in itself is not a point, but it's weird where we've reached the stage where it's not even about class or wealth or anything like that. It's someone will just look at me and be like, oh, 
you're you're black this person is white this person has white privilege so you must be some sort of oppressed by and i'm like dude i'm so much better off than the vast majority of white people in the uk let alone in the world right i can walk outside and almost every person i see that's homeless is a white male mm. right and the, the, what's it called the apex fallacy where um people will look at the very top of something so they'll say oh well most most uh ceos of fortune 500 companies are white males but they'll never look at the bottom and see that actually in those same societies the people who are worst off by many measures in terms of homelessness drug use alcoholism poverty suicide rates deaths those are also primarily certainly male and often the case white male as well so it's a very selective it's like a, it's like a very selective and convenient way of looking at certain factors to try to make the point and beyond all that it's just the, the whole the whole concept is is garbage i mean it's and it's not helpful you know i know we i know we discussed this when i was on the show that's mm -hmm. the thing is it's not helpful like i don't see okay even if even if we accept all of this stuff it's like okay well now what you've made these people feel bad about themselves for something that they haven't done and what now you know yeah, well, I think the thing that you you and I are both talking about essentially is it's almost like judging people by the color of the skin is a really bad idea. Yeah, <laughs> low, low <and laughs> I wish somebody had said that about fifty years ago. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so I've kind of had both experiences. I've been incredibly privileged, mm -hmm. um, and I've been incredibly poor and starving and, and all the rest of it. So, yeah, and then I had to drop out of university. I never got to finish my degree. Uh, I had to start my own business, so I started a, a translation business. It was really the only two skills I had. I knew two languages, and I kind of understood finance and economics a little bit from from the studies that I'd done. Uh, and I did that for 10 years, and then I got really bored, and I felt like uh, I actually have something to say. And I remember watching people like George Carlin and Bill Hicks and people like that who were stand-up comedians who were not just saying something funny but actually trying to make a point mm. as well uh, and challenging the mainstream narrative in society. Uh, and that's why I got into stand-up about three and a half, four years ago. Mm. Oh, how did, and how, how did you do that? What was the process? What was your first gig? How did you write your first first stuff? Well, yeah, I, I, I'm i trying to remember. So I think the first gig, would, I did like a, like an introduction to comedy, like half a week workshop or something where they mm -hmm. teach you like the very basics of like, don't don't do this, don't do that stand like this you know hold the microphone like that here's how you might want to think about writing the joke and at the end of that it's like a showcase with your friends and family they're all very supportive for your mm. terrible jokes you, know, <laughs> you, you go and do your absolutely horrendous jokes and they're like yeah this is brilliant yeah. so you walk off stage and you go oh i'm i'm amazing i'm gonna be great at this and then you go out into the real world and you turn up like at an open mic night when it's you and 10 other equally disinterested comedians there's no actual audience it's just other comics and and it's pretty brutal the first year or two is absolutely brutal because the, those are the hardest gigs you actually probably ever do yeah because you're performing it's the same in music is it yeah well so not not to that sense but as in it's it's harder at the beginning mm. when nobody knows you nobody is there for you nobody is on your side and whatever you know it's much easier to perform for a crowd that already knows you and loves you and wants to sing along to your songs than it is to win over a crowd who's neutral or maybe even somewhat hostile who's kind of just looking at you like almost like they don't want to like it they don't want to laugh at your jokes they don't want to clap at the music and you're kind of there like man i need to win these people over that's a lot harder than you know performing for fans 
exactly yeah. exactly uh, and um, so you spend your first couple of years just grinding it out and but the thing is you're really not very good in your first couple of years either you know mm. uh so it's kind of it, it, your audience matches your skill level yeah. and as your skill level goes up hopefully your audiences and the gigs you get to play improve as well so uh, i've but i i feel like i've i've made a lot of progress and particularly in the last couple of years i'm, I'm playing some of the biggest clubs in the uk now mm-hmm. i'm doing my own show in edinburgh fringe this year about uh some things that have happened recently so yeah it, it's going well and uh and i've always been very keen to use comedy as a way to talk about what i think is happening in society i can't remember whose quote is but it's a brilliant quote about how comedy is kind and pessimistic uh in other words comedy feels like well we can't change anything therefore we might as well laugh about it mm-hmm. where satire is angry and optimistic okay where, yeah. where you think well things are wrong but we can actually change them and here's me kind of saying this is what needs to change mm-hmm. you know and i i always tend towards satire i do comedy as well obviously but i i, I always my brain always leans towards satire i always feel like we can do better yeah. Today's episode of Real Talk with Zuby is brought to you by our sponsors, OZ Lifestyle Brands. OZ Lifestyle Brands care a lot about the details. Their selection of men's accessories balance style with substance and quality and craftsmanship, showcasing both casual and classic designs. They also make shopping really easy for you. You can just go check out their website, OZLifestyleBrands.com. They've got a fantastic selection of watches, wallets, t-shirts, and other accessories especially designed for men with ultra-discerning tastes. OZ is for men who have found their calling but don't feel the need to shout about it. So I recommend you go check out their full range of products over at OZLifestyleBrands.com. To let them know that I sent you and to get 20% off your entire first order, just use the code ZUBYMUSIC at checkout. That is ZUBYMUSIC, Z-U-B-Y MUSIC at checkout to get 20% off your entire order at OZLifestyleBrands.com. OZLifestyleBrands.com, go check them out. So coming up into the the time where we're we're at now, I mean, in the last couple of months, I have seen you by not so much by the media itself, but by some people who you've been debating with in the media or some other people who are well-known figures. I mean, you've been decried as being anything from from alt-right to a Nazi to a soy boy. Yeah. To I I don't know like a a, a liberal like so <laughs> uh, so of all of all these labels that have been thrown at you, many of which uh, cancel each other out. I know I I think you you've defined yourself many times as being a, a centrist. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, where have these labels come from, and how do you define yourself? What are the misconceptions there? Well, let's start at the beginning. So yeah. about six months ago, uh, I was offered to perform. Uh, some students saw me performing in a comedy club and they liked my stuff so they invited me to perform at their university in london Mm -hmm. and in doing so they said they wanted to create a safe space for comedy which doesn't exist but yeah (laughs) Uh, so they sent me a contract which uh, they called rather terrifyingly a behavioral agreement form uh, which said that in the interest of creating the safe space for comedy they have a zero tolerance policy on racism, sexism, classism, ageism, ableism, homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, xenophobia, Islamophobia, anti-religion, anti-atheism. And it said that all jokes must be respectful and kind. I love that. <laughs> I love that. That's that's that that's actually sounds like it's from a dystopian novel. It's brilliant. Yeah. So I turned it down. I tweeted about it and it became quite a big 
news story around the world. As you know, I was on Piers Morgan here in the yeah. UK, Tucker Carlson. It was all the newspapers worth the name as well as the Guardian. And within about 24 hours, uh, a mental woman, a radical feminist called Kate Smirthwaite called me a Nazi on national radio. She's, she's supposed to be a comedian, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've seen her being really angry on some shows before, but I've I've never gotten like a glimpse of comedy from her. But maybe yeah. I'll need to check that I, out. I've, I have actually gigged with her a few times. I, oh, okay. I, I have never seen her be particularly funny. But hey, uh, I, I don't like to go after comedians. No, 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 no do I. Um, but anyway, she called me. She called me an all right. She essentially called me a Nazi, which which has been absolutely brilliant for me because I now have a niche. Mm -hmm. I am the only Jewish Nazi comedian in the world. Yeah, who grew up in the Soviet Union too. Right, yeah. <laughs> just, 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 just to add to it, yeah. Yeah, so I've got all those skinhead synagogue gigs to myself, man. I'm, I'm crushing that circuit yeah. right now. Yeah, so uh, so that happened. And then um, in the last couple of weeks, uh, as you mentioned, uh, a, a genuinely far-right personality here in the UK called Katie Hopkins called me a soy boy on Twitter. In a t-shirt. Toy boy in a t-shirt, right? I'm wearing a shirt now. <laughs> I, I love, I love the inner t-shirt because I, I, I saw that and I was like, what, what was he supposed to wear? Like, wh yeah. why, why the t-shirt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, something wrong with t-shirts, <laughs> yeah. apparently. Which is interesting because I looked up the definition of soy boy, uh, and one, one of the defining features of a soy boy is someone who calls everyone else Nazis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so having been called a Nazi myself, I found that quite interesting. Uh, but anyway, so maybe, I don't know, if they're both right, I guess I'm no threat to anyone. Because even if I am genuinely evil, I am too weak to do anything about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so yeah, I, but, but I kind of think if both of the extremes are attacking you, you're probably somewhere in the middle, which is genuinely where I am. I have some left-wing beliefs. I have some beliefs that are center-right. But broadly speaking, I, I would say I'm quite a reasonable person. I mean, look at even something like... Um, Brexit, which is a big issue here in the UK. Yeah. I voted Remain, but I, I have a lot of sympathy for many people who voted Leave. Yeah. Uh, and I try to come at things with a kind of understanding that, broadly speaking, human beings are not evil. The vast majority of people are eminently reasonable, mm. are eminently in the middle, are willing to hear both sides of the argument, which is kind of why we started trigonometry. We wanted to talk to and hear the opinions of people that we may not necessarily agree with or may not necessarily hear a lot in the media. Yeah. Well, so what was it exactly that led to you wanting to start that podcast? Like, I know why I started mine, mm. but was there a particular incident or at, at what stage were you just like, oh, like, okay, someone, I, we need to do something about this. Was there like a certain moment? Yeah. I think it was the Trump and Brexit. Okay thing particularly brexit because i'm an immigrant in this country i've lived here for over 20 years and what happened when brexit happened it, it was essentially people deciding that half of the country are these racist xenophobes mm -hmm. that hate immigrants and i just went i mean i am pro remain mm -hmm. and i'm not happy that brexit happened mm -hmm. that's how i felt at the time but i know for a fact that half of the people in this country are not racist xenophobes no i know that yeah from my own experience from talking to other people from ethnic minority groups from immigrant communities i know that yeah so something is wrong here so let's talk to some people who voted brexit who are experts in this thing mm -hmm. and find out why it is and then once you once you take a little peek into that wormhole you suddenly go oh wait maybe the gender pay gap isn't all about discrimination 
mm. or maybe maybe white privilege isn't as simple as people make it out to be. Um, okay, so what so what were your position on some of those things before you started having these conversations? Well, my position was the general kind of lefty liberal position, which is you know don't hurt anyone, try and be nice. Everyone who voted Brexit is an idiot. You know, women are oppressed, all this kind of stuff. Okay, and then. When you start to look at the facts, because I've always been fascinated by truth, you know, I've been obsessed with truth because I lived in a society where truth was verboten. Mm -hmm. It was forbidden. Yeah. Uh, and saying the truth would get you in trouble. So once I started to look at the facts uh, and talk, you know, we've had Kay Andrews on the show, who's a well-known economist talking about breaking down the causes of the gender pay gap. Mm -hmm. We've had evolutionary psychologists explaining that, for example, lesbians make more money than straight women. Right. So is that lesbian privilege or is it maybe that lesbians have certain characteristics that are more masculine in some mm -hmm. ways? Gay men make more than straight men too, right? No. Oh, no? No. Oh, I thought that this was is, true. No, I, I don't okay. think so. I think oh. so. It's essentially about risk taking and assertiveness, which okay. gay men tend to be less likely to. Maybe it's, it's gay couples. Yes. That make, okay. All right. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. yeah. But that's because there's two men. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of, course, <sorry. laughs> of course, obviously. Yeah. And, and less likely to have kids, obviously, yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. So we just started to kind of peel back the veneer of what the mainstream media tells you. And as soon as you look under the bonnet, you suddenly find out that a lot of these things that we are being fed by the mainstream media are absolutely not the way that they actually are. Yeah. And of course, you know, YouTube is, is a big part of this. You know, the Jordan Petersons, the Dave Rubens, the Joe Rogans of the world, they're, they're creating a space. All, all, the, all the people who are now who are getting getting labeled and demonized. Yeah. Did you see that New York Times piece? You must have. Uh, which one? Uh, the making of a YouTube radical. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where they had uh, even like Philip DeFranco. And I was like, geez, there's people I know on this. Thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, wow. Well, I'm, I, met, I, met, I met Brett, Brett Weinstein the, a few weeks back. Yeah. Uh, and you know he's in some quarters he's a nazi he's a oh, right i i came to i came to defend something he was saying uh yesterday mm -hmm. yesterday morning which he he was thankful for he like he responded to me um and he was oh gosh man it's it's weird i mean he's a progressive like he's a proper lefty as well mm. that, yeah. that's the thing it's like, <laughs> it's, like, it's like he's not I, I don't i i actually politically would would disagree with him on, on a ton of stuff but anyone who is reasonable and willing to have conversations like i don't even if someone were like there are even people who are like not that i know personally but i've come across people online who are like legitimately far left or legitimately far right but they still maintain like you know they're not they're not psychos so I'm, i might disagree strongly with their positions but they're still willing to have the conversations and have the debates and try to defend their ideas and all that kind of stuff. So it's like across the whole spectrum, I think I could, you know, sit down and have a conversation with pretty much anybody who is willing to, who is still open to the idea of conversation. If it's someone like, is, who's just, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna speak to anyone outside my bubble. I'm not gonna legitimize the enemy or wh whatever phrasing they want to use. Because the thing is, as soon as conversation stops, you know, I always say you've got three options. You can, you can segregate, you can conversate, or you can fight. And th these are the only three options to resolve problems. 
But I think what a big problem is, is um, this is something Brett was commenting on, and I was, I was also trying to explain it to people, is that by the silencing of the, vo- the moderate voices in the middle, it actually can push people to the extremes because people go, okay, well, no one in the center left or center right is talking about this issue or understanding my concern. And m- by me just having this concern, you're being called names and whatever. And then they're seeing people on the fringes who are saying, oh, okay, you know, this issue is there. They're, for their own nefarious reasons, they're probably massively overblowing the issue. But people in the middle then go, oh, well, they're at least talking about it. And I think that's the problem with all this silencing of all these big issues, whether it's something to do with immigration, something to do with religion, or in the UK, something like Islam in particular, or whether it's to do with certain things around sex and gender, or you know, it's like by silencing it, you're, you're, you push people to these fringes. And I'm just, that's why I'm very much super pro free speech, almost like essentially a free speech absolutist. And I'm just like, look, these ideas, even the ones I don't like, even the ones I think are reprehensible, whether it's coming from the left or the right or the top or the bottom, they need to be out there because the ideas that do not stand, I do believe, can be defeated with better arguments. Mm. And also just for the sake of empathy. You know what I mean? Like there are people who have really fringe views that I really dislike, but I can understand some people would want to demonize me for even saying this, but I can get where they're coming from in their own worldview. A bit like how in, um, have you seen, um, the latest Marvel, latest Marvel films like, uh, Endgame and Infinity War? No, I don't watch those, but tell me. Anyway. No. Okay. All right. So the main, you know, who, th- do you know who Thanos is? Yeah. Okay. So Thanos's whole idea basically is he wants to wipe out 50% of all living beings in the universe because his own his own planet was, you know, the population expanded too quickly and they ran out of resources and loads and loads of people died and it was horrible. So he wants to prevent this happening in other places. So he wants to wipe out half of the Earth's population. So he's like a Green Party Nazi type thing. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So he wants to get all of the Infinity Stones, and then he can just literally vaporize half of the entire population. So his idea is wrong, right? Yeah. (laughs) But everything he does in the film is motivated by this morality, Mm. right? So it's like, in his framework, what he's doing makes complete sense. So you, Mm. you can empathize with it. It's not just he's evil and just wants to kill people for the sake of it. It's like, no, he wants to do it for what he considers a greater good, even though we all generally completely disagree with his methods. Mm. So that's why he's a really interesting character. It's the Mm. same in Black Panther. You've got this guy called a killmonger who, you know, his motives are, he's a bad guy, but his motives are not just megalomania or evil or just being a complete psychopath. It's like, there's a, there's a logic to it. It's just that some of those things are, he hasn't connected the dots correctly, if you see what I mean. And that's what I think is true of both the true far left and the true far right. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time, you know, actually looking at the arguments and seeing what people are saying. And it's, uh, you know, I think a lot of people don't want to don't want to do that. But for the sake of my own knowledge and trying to just understand the world around me, I think it's important to do that. Well, yeah, you're intellectually curious. I, I think one of the interesting things about what you're talking about is that particularly with the far left, I think the far left get given a little bit of sympathy that they don't deserve because the idea is that they're coming from a good place. Mm. And, Not always. 
well, but but that is the the narrative, right? Yeah. They, they they're trying to protect people. They yeah. care about people, uh, and my hesitation with that is always, well, look, the Soviet Union was created by people who had great intentions. I mean, I I, I wrote a piece for Quillette about this, talking about how the Soviet Union was actually, in many ways, a brilliant society. Everybody mm -hmm. had healthcare. Everybody had a really high standard of education. There was no ethnic tension. Blah blah blah. All these great things. It's just a pity you had to kill 50 million people to make it happen, yeah, right? Yeah. And um, the the idea that having good intentions justifies evil behavior no. is a problem. And that is a problem that we're facing now. But coming back to the point that you made about the fact that people are being pushed to the fringes, it's actually a self-fulfilling prophecy because what happens is, let's say, take the issue of immigration in this country, right? Ordinary people tried to raise immigration as an issue, yeah. right? And you know, when you and I were at school, when I came to this country in 1995, 3% of the British public thought that immigration was a major issue. Mm -hmm. You know why? Because the level of immigration into this country was about 50 to 60,000 people yeah. a year, right? By the mid noughties 50% or close to 50% of the British public thought that immigration was a major issue. Mm -hmm. Why? Because in the Blair peak of immigration, more people had come under the Blair government than had come from 1066 to 1950. Wow. Right? So the reason people were concerned about immigration is because it was a major issue, yeah. because we had large numbers of people coming. And what happened is instead of addressing that, instead of addressing that reality, Anyone who was remotely even reasonable raising those issues was immediately dismissed as racist and bigoted. Yeah, yeah. And then what happens is it's an issue that gets picked up by the far right. And then the people who were saying, talking about immigration as racist go, well, well, look, it's an issue that the far right care about. Therefore, mm -hmm. everyone who cares about really was racist, really was xenophobic. Yeah. And that's why I generally feel like the work that you are doing and the work that I'm doing with trigonometry and other people like us who in this stupid world where what you're allowed to say depends on your skin color or where you come from, yeah. we are, we have that kryptonite. Mm. I've had so many people after my Good Morning Britain appearance talking about whether John Cleese was racist to say that London was become less English. I had so many people come up to me and go, I'm so glad you're saying it because I wouldn't be able to. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 get, I get the same thing. I get the same thing a lot. I had um, a conversation with, uh, I don't know if you know Eric July. He's also um, a musician from the States, but he's a, you know, he's a black guy from Texas. He's like a, an anarcho-capitalist. He runs like a podcast and stuff. You know, he's, he's like super duper, like super libertarian. Hmm. And we had a really interesting discussion about that, you know, about some of the issues amongst black communities in America, certain things around gun control, about the fact that 90% of black Americans vote Democrat and all, all these things. And, you know, we, we, we joked halfway through the thing. We were like, gosh, man, if we were two white dudes, this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> like this conversation would be used as like evidence of us being like some super great. And it's, and it's amazing. It's like, yeah, you know, in a, in an ideal world, the argument and the facts being espoused, the person's skin color or their gender or whatever, who's saying it shouldn't matter. But because we're, in this current state where that these are the things that people care about that legitimizes or delegitimizes an argument it's like well you know what bro we may as well use this to our advantage and not back down and not cower and say what we feel needs to be said in order to help people for yeah. the greater good yeah yeah and i think that that is becoming increasingly important which is minorities or immigrants speaking out about these issues and going hold on a second these are the facts yeah. and you can't call me racist because in your world, 
you can only be racist if you're white yeah. <laughs> or you can only be xenophobic if you're indigenous yeah, yeah. right or whatever and you're kind of using their system against them on the one hand on the other hand it does worry me it worries me that 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 is the world we live in where even those of us who abhor identity politics like you and i we are still forced to play into it mm. we are still you and i would not have the platform that we have if we if not of our background yeah that's it's true. just a fact yeah it would be a lot harder to talk about certain things without certain act i mean some of these accusations still get levied our way, mm. even even when they don't make any sort of sense. Yeah. But um, I think it's a lot easier. They don't they don't they can't stick, right? If somebody call tries to call me a a, a white supremacist or not, like it it can't stick because it's just like they just look completely stupid. Yeah. Right? So yeah, I mean, if if that's what it takes, then I'll use that to my. Well, advantage. yeah, it's and it's it's kind of it's a shield that you can use because you know when I was on Good Morning Britain a couple of weeks ago, the the conversation was John Cleese said that London has become less English, or I think yeah. he said it wasn't really an English city anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I I said to him, well, look, I don't know if it's it's not not English, but it's certainly way less English than it was, mm -hmm. right? I mean, let's look at the facts. Forty two percent of the people who live in in London are foreign born, like me, mm -hmm. right? And they they just couldn't process it. And I said, okay, forget about like immigrants and race and everything else. What about if 50%, if half of the people who lived in London were Scottish, yeah. right? Other white people, but immigrants, mm -hmm. right? Would London be less English? And you just, you just watch their heads explode. Yeah. It's like, they've never considered this. That's gone quite viral, hasn't it? It has. Yeah. I think it's like 400,000 views on, oh, so <laughs> on YouTube now. Yeah. Okay. I can't, it's, I can't. Media destroys three social justice warriors. Yeah, I love, I love the title. You, you, went, yeah. for the, you went for the full YouTube bait. On yeah. Well, our, our producer kind of edited it down <laughs> with all the kind of sound effects and all the rest of it, which I'm not a big fan of clickbait, but it needed to be done. I think on yeah. this particular one, After the Constantin kissing, um, thug life videos are coming soon yeah i think that i think if they keep bringing me on tv i think those will be coming but the thing is that i think if i was a british white person saying that yeah. i wouldn't have even got the opportunity to articulate the factual point no because i would have been shut down before then and this is kind of the small leeway that you and i have and people like us have is or it's interesting to me that you know like people like dave rubin for example he's a gay guy right so that gives him a bit of a shield as well you know what i mean like i know a lot of people in this world who have that little bit of a shield because i guess you wouldn't even get to that point if you were just a straight white guy yeah yeah it's, you know it's 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 amazing it's very it's very strange i mean so i take it obviously you're you're very outspoken on this and you're working to sort of do your little bit to turn the tide shall we say so where do you think this goes? Do you think it gets better from here? Do you think it gets worse and keeps getting worse? Do you think it gets worse and then gets better? What are your predictions? I don't know for the next, I mean, cause this, this stuff has happened. I want to say in the last five years, this is mm. in the last four years, even this is really, yeah. really ramped up. So where do you think it goes from here? I mean, five years, 10 years, 15 years from now, I mean, it's, it, it's looking kind of like, whoa, it could go all the way there. It could go all the way there. People might, heed the warning signs and make sure it stays in the middle what do you think i think that we are now at a point where probably halfway through it mm. i think it's it's going to keep getting worse and i it's interesting to me that the the clip of you doing that deadlift uh went viral because i've always said that the trans thing is the thing that's going to break the intersectionality agenda mm. and the reason is that most people don't care about free speech 
Most people don't care about white privilege. Most people don't care about the gender pay gap as a concept, yeah. right? People go to work, they bring up their kids, they try and put food on the table, they try and make money, they try and progress in their life, they try and have meaningful relationships. Most, the vast majority of people are not interested in this, yeah. right? But when you start saying to people that a biological male not only needs to be called a different pronoun, which most people, look, most people are eminently reasonable and compassionate. Mm -hmm. If someone says to me, you know what, I self-identify as a woman now, please call me she. Yeah. You're not going to go, you're not going to go out of your way to. No. You know. Who, what, what the hell do I know? We've had the transgender woman on the show talking about feeling like she is a woman from the age of five. Yeah. Yeah. And if that is her experience and if, Maybe something, as she was saying, something happens in utero where you get bombarded with the wrong hormones and something happens and that is just how you feel. I'm all for compassion for those people. Mm -hmm. But the moment you start putting it out to the general public, that if your seven-year-old says, hey, mommy, you know, maybe I'm not as much of a boy as I thought or whatever, you start to have to give them hormone blockers mm. or that a woman being beaten up in a cage by someone who two years ago was a guy who's gone through puberty, yeah. who has- And competed as a guy. And competed as a guy, right? Once you start putting that proposition to ordinary people, I mean, I, I've done it. I've yeah. talked to people who are not into this thing, who don't know anything about it. And I've said it to them, their eyes become the size of plates. They just go, what? <laughs> what people, ordinary people don't know about this stuff yet, Zuby. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. the thing. And once it gets into the, the general public, that is where you're gonna start to see a lot of genuine pushback. So. I think this is going to continue to get worse. Yeah, I think because I also think. Um, sorry to interject. No, I think, yeah, yeah. I also think the other thing is, I don't even like to saying it, but you're starting to see certain people and certain organizations and stuff start to start to push for like normalization of pedophilia. Mm. Like this is this is something I'm seeing now, and you've got certain people who are trying to lump it. They're kind of trying to slide it into the LGBT thing, so that if you are critical of a 12 year old boy twerking at a pride parade that you are now against gay people, right? They're trying, they're, they're trying to conflate all of them together with no delineation. And I also think that's another hill that people, people will die on, right? When, when children, whether it's with the trans thing or whatever else, when children start getting involved in this stuff, that's when I think that people will draw a very hard line. Mm. You're already starting to see a lot of fractures in, in the intersectionality thing. Like we have the school in Birmingham, mm -hmm. uh, a Muslim school, uh, which is trying to ban teaching about homosexuality. Didn't and you can, coming. Yeah. Well, everybody did. <laughs> everybody was paying attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> coming. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> everybody saw it, but the general public didn't. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly the general public are going, wait, we're being told that Muslims are the suppressed group. And yet here they are imposing their view on another oppressed group mm -hmm. and you know which one do we side with and a lot of people's brains explode at this point because it's it's like that two plus two equals five thing yeah, yeah you know it's, it's, it's a really interesting one i mean because you know i myself i, I grew up in saudi arabia mm. right? i grew up in the middle east i grew up in a place similar to yourself without this right to free speech and you know essentially a theocracy there's no delineation there's no separation of church and state what is in the Quran is the law. And I mean, it was a good place to grow up in many ways, but I think it's given me a very interesting perspective in a lot of ways. And one thing I've always found 
fascinating. Like one thing, one thing I sometimes morbidly say, although it's not really, it sounds like a joke, but it's not really a joke. But I sometimes wonder if the Western world's own tolerance is going to be its death knell, right? right? Because it's it's one way. Okay, so if you're in Saudi Arabia, you can't build. There's zero churches in Saudi Arabia, zero. You cannot build a church there. If you're a Christian or any other religion, you can't. You know, you can't bring a Bible into the country. You can't go out on the street and you know do street preaching or anything like that. You'll be arrested immediately, right? So, you know, you, you obviously can't drink alcohol. You can't eat pork, even if you're not a Muslim. You know, you you follow their rules, which is fine. Like I totally respect that. I'm like, look, you, they want to keep their country and their rules their way, and they've got a right to do that. But it's amazing to me how people in the UK and other countries are completely bending backwards, despite it being totally one way, right? That's the thing that always I find quite remarkable and admirable in one way. <laughs> but in another way, I'm kind of like, well, how far, how far are you going to go with that, right? You've got all mosques popping up all over the UK, all over Europe, but in the Islamic world, you know, no churches are being built and it's, it's not even allowed. So it's one of those things that, you know, again, this is very like taboo topic, but as someone who's sort of seen both of those sides, I'm a bit like, well, tolerance is great. Like I get that, but are people aware that you can't kind of do the same thing over there? So how are you going to reconcile these two things? Like, I don't, I don't even know the answer. Mm. Um, I know what some people who are super hardline would say. Um, I don't necessarily think that's even the correct answer, but it's like, well, Again, these are these are discussions that people don't want to have because they're uncomfortable. But I think, well, <coughs> these are serious issues when you when you're looking at the demographics, you're looking at the changes of demographics and numbers rising, numbers going to end. It's like, well, you've got to look decades into the future. Yeah. And I'm not trying to be super alarmist here or anything like that. But, you know, these things do need at least honest conversation. I think that the honest conversation that we're not having in the UK uh, as much as we should be uh, is about integration. Mm. It's about the fact that. Uh, we're a welcoming country. We accept people from all over the world. We don't mm -hmm. care what your skin color is. But what we do care about is that you come to the society and you accept the rules of this society. Yeah. A and we have to have a set of national values that everybody gets behind. And if you have communities that think that they can set their own values, that if you have communities that think they can segregate themselves, mm -hmm. if you have communities that want to have their own system of law, yeah. that is not compatible with a Western liberal democracy. No, it's not. Uh, and so the rules, in my opinion, have to be that if you want to come to this country, the, the, the unspoken or maybe even spoken deal is you become British. Mm. You become British. There is none of this, oh, we, we've got our own culture. You know, half a million Russians turn up box off a, a piece of London and go and here, <laughs> we're just going to speak Russian and eat Russian food and, and have Russian customs. Yeah. Yeah. You so, can't have that. Yeah. So why do you think it is? I mean, this may perhaps it's historical reasons and some aspects of guilt, but why do you think it is that these rules? So like, I, I agree with you that if you're in a different country, you should respect their laws and their rules. And especially if you're there long term, I think you should learn the language. I think you should do your best to integrate. It doesn't mean you can't lose your, it doesn't mean you have to lose your own identity or culture or anything like that, but you can integrate well and do all that. And, and people generally agree with that for most countries, mm. right? Most people would be 
abhorred of the idea of, I don't know, people going to China or to Japan or to Nigeria or and kind of creating their own little enclave and then trying to force the natives to bend to their will. Mm. So why is it that people think it's kind of like okay for other countries to behave like that? But then if a country like Hungary or Poland kind of wants to do the same thing, they get the shouts and screams of xenophobia and hatred and bigotry and racism and all that. Well, I think it's, I don't think it's, it's a question that anyone's really got genuine answer to, but I think partly it's about the fact that we, we have a generation of young people, particularly now who are just not educated. They're not educated uh, because they've maybe never traveled. They probably haven't read history. They don't understand how things are in other countries. They've just been told that tolerance uh, is our strength, that diversity is our strength without Mm. understanding what any of those words mean. And it's a kind of fear of being perceived as xenophobic or racist uh, that means that we can't have any of these conversations. And we started to, by the time it was too late, like David Cameron, our former prime minister, said multiculturalism has failed. Angela Merkel said that multiculturalism has failed before letting in a million (laughs) Syrian refugees, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, And the thing with all of that is the problem is not even the level of immigration, although there are points at which having too much immigration is a problem. The problem is that you don't say to people who come to this country, welcome, here are the rules. You learn Mm -hmm. the language, you become British. And and I probably would disagree with what you said that I think that maybe in the first generation, you don't lose your own culture. Mm. But this is how I've always thought about it. I'm from Russia. I will never cease being Russian because I grew up there. I have to some in some ways russian mentality my humor has a russian sense to the element to it right what's a, uh, what's a russian sense of humor very dark okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so i will never necessarily lose that but if my grandchildren should i have any thought of themselves as russian yeah i would consider that a failure on my part okay i get what you mean and a failure on my children's part to integrate them into the society. I personally believe at the end of the day that if you want to come to a country and you want to become part of that country, you want to get a passport, you want to settle down here, you want to have children here and grandchildren here, your job is to integrate those people into the society so that your your grandchildren, they might remember that you were Russian, Mm -hmm. but they feel British. Yeah, I I, I get that. Yeah, I get that. I I think what what I maybe maybe I could have worded better is people can be more than one thing, right? Sure. So just like myself, you know, both in terms, you know, even in terms of like my nationality and citizenship, mm-hmm. I'm a national and citizen of the UK and also of Nigeria, right? Um, same with, you know, everyone, everyone in my family. And, you know, we do very much have a Nigerian identity and I can go back to the country and, you know, like have stuff there, but I'm also British, you know, people think I'm American, but you know, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. kind of like, you know, it's like, I think this is, this is something that, you know, certainly I think the people who are like more far right kind of miss is that people can be more than one thing. So yeah, yeah you might be, you might be black, but you can also, you're, you're a black, but you're also, a, you know, I'm black, but I'm also a Christian. I'm also British. I'm also Nigerian. I've also got my, my political, you know, I've got, there's, there's a lot of things. I think, I think both extremes, I think, their biggest failing is trying to boil people down to just a single identity, mm. right? Just a single identity. So you are just 
it doesn't matter that you're Russian. It doesn't matter that you're an immigrant. It doesn't matter that where you grew up, right? You're a, you're a straight white male, right? You know, it's like it's like all these other things kind of go out the window. And then again, on the other side, it's like, okay, well, you know, they lose all the nuance, and it's just like, okay, well, you're non-white, and it's like, okay, yeah, but someone somebody can be. I think this is what nobody. This is probably what someone could have said in that TV debate that you had with about the John Cleese comment, but nobody articulated well because they were just screaming is that, you know, maybe a decent point someone could have made is that obviously someone can be like ethnically English or like Anglo-Saxon or whatever, but someone can also be totally British or very English despite coming from a different background. You know, just... I don't know, like nuance gets lost in all these things. As soon as the emotions, <laughs> as soon as the emotions ramp up past a certain level, sure. like people just lose their ability to be reasonable. But my point about integration, Zubi, is that if your grandchildren thought of themselves as Nigerian yeah, and supported the Nigerian national team over, say, the English national team, to me, uh, I personally would consider that a failure of integration. That's, That's interesting. Just... I, I, Yeah, I wouldn't. Mm. You know, I wouldn't. Like, in uh, the World Cup, I support both. Yeah, but your but my point is your first okay. generation, right? Or second um, in your case, I guess second. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. you know, I think even if when my kids, you know, I mean, I don't have kids yet, but my siblings do, mm. and they all wear the Nigerian yeah kit and whatnot. You know, it's it's like they're just both. You know, mm. they're, they're just they're just both. They're British and they're happy to be <laughs> British. But they I, also I think know, that maybe with yeah. something like Nigerian, it's one thing. But when you're talking about certain cultures, which are far more. Um, Less compatible, maybe. Not not so much compatible, but uh, which are much more specific about the things that you can and can't do and should mm. and shouldn't believe. Then that becomes a problem because okay. it creates a values conflict between the host society and the people who've come. I get what you mean. Yeah. So so if you had a belief system that essentially meant that, you know, you didn't believe in democracy. For I'm not saying that there are cultures that do, but just take a hypothetical example. Gotcha. If you if you felt that the best way to manage society is through socialism, mm. because let's let take my example, right? If I felt that growing up in the Soviet Union, socialism was so brilliant mm. that actually we don't need democracy. What we need mm. is to overthrow democracy and create socialism. And for four generations, everyone in my community taught that to their kids. Uh, I'm kind of laughing because it's not, it's not immigrants who are pushing for that. For, yeah, for that right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that might well, be a just more about me rather than offending some other group, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. To me, that would be a failure of integration, mm. because what it says to me is you have come to a country that has a certain uh, national identity. Mm. And instead of adapting and incorporating yourself into that, you've brought your own values mm. and you are trying to reshape society according to the thing that you left. Yeah. I mean, if you really like socialism, go and live in China or in Venezuela or wherever or Cuba, or, or if you really want to, to live in a in an Islamic state, there are plenty of places you can do that, right? Uh, so I think it's about all of us who've come here, who are second generation or whatever, just understanding that there is such a thing as British identity. There's such a thing as British culture. There is such a thing as British values. And either you adopt those, mm -hmm. or maybe you need to pick a country to live in that suits your values better. Yeah. So we're going to, where I'm looking at the time, we're going to have mm -hmm. to wrap up soon. But what you just said brought an interesting question to mind, which is who defines those values? So I, th I think, you know, if we talk about British values and culture, I I've got like a, I could probably think of a few things that I would consider in that. But I think 
we're living in this weird time where it's not really known well who who defines or decides that now well the thing is that a culture isn't something that you can just like write down as a law and yeah. then everyone goes yeah yeah we accept this mm. uh, but i think what we need to start looking at is um how do you create a sense of community out of what have essentially become disparate separate communities mm. a lot of people talk about the need for some kind of national service where essentially it's it's this thing that pulls people together from different communities to engage in joint activities to get to know each other, to understand that we're not as different as we keep thinking that we are. Uh, a place where people come together as young young adults maybe, or as older kids, and learn to, to work with others, to, yeah. to engage with people from other communities. It's very difficult to define British identity because of how embarrassed people have been for probably 30 or 40 years to talk about it. Yeah. But there are certain things that make this country what it is. Just like with America, it's a lot easier there's the American dream and everybody kind of knows what that is. Right. Uh, and also because they have a written constitution that was written very recently in historical terms, there are certain things that are enshrined in it that essentially all Americans kind of have to accept, even if they don't like, you know, the, the freedom of speech thing, it's so much easier to discuss in America because you have the first amendment. Yeah. You know, it's enshrined, but in America, they're now having this problem because you've got people who just don't even don't care about the Constitution, don't care about the amendments. And they're again, they're trying to uproot mm. their own. And these are American Americans. And it's it's weird. It's almost like the the enemy's kind of on the inside. Right? It's not, it's not coming from the outside. You've got yeah. people there who are coming out of the university system who are trying to do what you said, install so mm. socialism, mm. Uh, restrict the First Amendment, take away the Second Amendment. Um, and some of them, some of them are a little bit sneaky about it, but some of them are pretty frank and open about like, yeah, no, I, I just, I don't care about that. It was written by some dead white males and we should rip it up. So but that's what I love about America. You know, every time I've been to America, I've tried to go to a museum about American history or uh, I went to one in Philly, which was absolutely brilliant. And, and you just get the sense of it's a society that is constantly debating what the rules should be. Yeah. And I understand that there are extremists on both sides, but that is much better than what we have sometimes in this country where we're afraid to talk about the real issues. Mm. And instead of having that debate, what we do is we just keep it all suppressed. Yeah, yeah. And then we just throw milkshakes at people <laughs> when they don't agree with it. <laughs> and this is one of the things I wanted to say, which does worry me about what's happening is language is important. Uh, mm. the, this is one of the things I agree with the left or maybe even the radical left about language is important. And the reason it's important is that one of the things we've seen in this country and elsewhere is if you label your political opponents as Nazis, at some point, you actually start to believe it. Yeah. And so do other people. Now, let's imagine for a second that I actually thought you were Hitler. Right. Mm -hmm. I actually thought that you were a budding Hitler. Mm -hmm. I would be, you know, it's that eternal question. If you could go back and shoot Hitler, would you? Well, of course you would. Most people would say they would, right? So now I am in my head yeah. entitled to shoot you. Yeah, more, morally, morally obliged. Morally obliged. I have to. It, it's my duty, right? And as, I mean, for now, it's milkshakes. Mm -hmm. But if this way of talking continues, you will see people. And I hate to say this, and I, I hope it doesn't happen. I hope I'm wrong about this. But if this continues, you will see people being physically attacked and then killed. Yeah. 
because if you continue to label people as evil enemies eventually you start to believe it eventually other people start to believe it and eventually there will be someone who's crazy enough to feel justified in doing it yeah, that's the danger it is dangerous there there are a lot of dangers with this stuff i do think like you know, I, I think on a level, like everyone who's kind of having these conversations and, you know, you mentioned guys like Joe Rogan and Dave, you know, I think they, I think what they're doing is far more important than most people realize. And I think also because it, it empowers other people to be inspired and do the same things and have those conversations, talk across party lines. And, you know, it's like a pressure valve, you know, just mm. like re release release the pressure so that it doesn't just get otherwise again you just the, the fringes will dominate because those are the people who tend to be the most vocal mm -hmm. the most active right you don't get there's no such thing as a centrist activist mm. you know you know you know right yeah like there's no there's no one who's just in the middle who's like you know it's it's the people who are you know very polarized so but it is starting to happen now i, I is, kind yeah. of i kind of think of myself as, as a centrist activist i guess way. so yeah i guess so I mean, we're trying to essentially what we're doing with trigonometry is a British version of the Rubin Report or, mm. or Joe Rogan. We're trying to create and we are really the only ones that are doing it. We're, we're creating a space where these conversations can be had. They can be uh, long enough that the conversation can be you get a chance to say what you actually think, uh, kind of like what we're doing now. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people come up to both my co-host Francis and I, we get loads of people coming up to in the street going. It's a great thing you're doing. Keep doing it. Good. But I can't tell anyone about it. Yeah. <laughs> so the majority of society, I think, is in that place. Yeah. I, I always say that, man, if everyone, if like, there should just be maybe one day of the week where everyone just decides, like, okay, like, everyone's just going to break this matrix on this day. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then, like, that silent majority, everyone just speaks <laughs> up. Everyone, everyone will be protected because everyone mm. else is speaking up. Mm. And, like, we can just, we can just, you know and this and like just kind of come back to normality yeah but um awesome bro i'm, I'm looking at the time man um yeah thanks we, for know, having me no absolutely bro um before we uh before we jump off let people know where they can find you online and also where they can check out your podcast so i'm at on twitter at constantin kissing just my name and uh, we're at TriggerPod on Twitter and uh, on YouTube as well. Just put in TriggerPod or Trigonometry. And uh, we've got interviews with all kinds of fascinating people. As I said, evolutionary psychologists. We, we try to balance it up, actually. I mean, one of the greatest difficulties in doing the podcast is getting enough left kind of woke people on. You can get old school lefties who are kind of, you know, the old former laborite kind of working class people. We've got loads of those. Uh, but they're, get they're, they're right wing now. Yeah, they're right wing now. So we've got a bunch of those. Uh, you know, we've had, uh, you know, big names on the show like Douglas Murray, Peter Hitchens, Jeffrey Miller. We've had you on, obviously. You know, we, we have a really interesting selection of guests. So uh, check it out if that's something that if you're interested in genuine conversation that's unfiltered, relaxed, and people get a chance to say what they actually think. Awesome. I do recommend it. I can honestly say it's the best interview I've ever done and ever had. So thank you for that. Awesome. Constantin Kissin, thank you so much for joining the Real Talk with Zuby podcast, and we will talk soon. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang, y'all gonna remember the name. Y'all gonna remember the name. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.